The Battle of Alberta highlights another wild night in the Stanley Cup playoffs. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team for The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders. From Avenue Machinery, visit avenuemachinery.ca. Uh, we were all, you know, okay, how, how much like the battles of Alberta passed, like the 80s and 90s, is this going to look? And uh, I'm not sure anybody expected it to look quite like that with 15 combined goals, at least not on Calgary's end. <laughs> Calgary putting up a nine spot, I think people could have bought. Uh, but Jacob Markstrom playing like that, I'm not so sure. But uh, that was a spectacle and a half last night in the Battle of Alberta, Dredzer. What fun. What fun. That's so good. Can't so good. Series of games. I mean, and and look, the fact is, is people are saying like, oh, it was terrible hockey or what have you. It, I mean, it was from Edmonton, but the Calgary Flames just had a goalie struggle enormously, right? I mean... On form, that was like a 6-3, 7-2 sort of win for the Flames. It's just that Markstrom had a really off day. And that sort of creates some concern, I think, because the Calgary Flames can beat the Edmonton Oilers even if Markstrom isn't at his absolute best. But they can't beat Colorado if Markstrom's yeah. not at his absolute best. And, and you know, Markstrom's now played 72 games. I mean, we talk about the 60-game mark being sort of the sweet spot for goalies what what if it's 10 games lower than that especially if you plan to play late into the spring or into the summer uh, early parts of the summer anyway you know you look at the goalies that played 60 plus this season and you've got Demko serious injury at the end of the year UC Soros serious injury at the end of the year Connor Hellebuck nine uh, like 0.009 percent uh, say percentage points below his career average and Jacob Markstrom, who's now up to 70 and he's held up the best, but Oh boy. It, you know, again, he doesn't need to be great. He doesn't even need to be good for the flames to beat the Oilers, but he definitely is going to need to be very good if they're going to win the cup. And the thing with Jacob Markstrom is, you know, there's always, you're, you're always really able to tell when fatigue starts to set into his game. And I'm, I'm not ready to say that's what it was, last night but I mean we certainly have seen it here in Vancouver they've seen it in Calgary when he was really overused and overworked by the previous coaching staff and Jeff Ward it's a very very significant drop-off for Jacob Markstrom and it can happen in a hurry when that fat fatigue issue uh, does come to play now I, I think the interesting thing about that result last night is if you're Edmonton okay look you don't like to see Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen play like that but you also kind of know it's baked into your performance right so on, on the one hand you can kind of say well yeah goaltending was probably going to blow up against this Calgary Flames team at some point uh, so whatever we'll move on the problem is how many more performances like that from Jacob Markstrom are you going to get that's really the problem is if he locks in now you know that you would think that's probably going to be his worst performance of the series. And if you're Edmonton, you were not able to actually capitalize on it. So it's a tough break for Edmonton to score six goals and not even come close to winning the game. Um, but as you said, fantastic entertainment last night. Uh, really, really good spectacle as well. And as you pointed out, Calgary, for the most part, played really, really well, right? Like Matthew Kachuk had an awesome game. Johnny Gaudreau was good. Andrew Mangiapane was great. Like, Rasmus Anderson had a strong game. A lot of their top players really showed up and performed 
in that game. And I, I want to talk about the call, uh, the Calgary Flames specifically uh, a little bit here, Drancer, and how they relate to the Vancouver Canucks. And by the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, Daily Faceoff NHL insider and 650 contributor Frank Saravelli was on with Halford and Bruff this morning, and they were talking about the Canucks' offseason plans and you know to what degree should you expect to see a major overhaul of the roster? Will it be more small changes? Things like that. And Frank made an interesting comparison between where the Canucks stand going into this summer uh, and where the Flames were coming into this current season. Here's what Saravelli had to say this morning. Again, it comes back to the mission and mandate of the team. This isn't some you know major rebuild or overhaul. This is a team that is trying to build on the success that they had last season, and they're trying to you know to get back in the playoffs next year. They're trying to you know speaking of Goudreau, they're trying to do what the Flames did this year, go from being out of the playoffs to winning your division, and they got some help along the way with some other teams stumbling like the Vegas Golden Knights. But when you look at you know, everything that happened and, and the question marks surrounding the Flames for them to come back with, you know, a pending unrestricted free agent in, in Gaudreau, what happens with Andrew Mangiapane on his contract. Like, there was a number of question marks surrounding that team. They said, you know what, let's, let's go for it. Let's see what happens. I could see that being the case. And that is uh, NHL insider Daily Fate for the Daily Faceoff and 650 contributor Frank Saravelli kind of speculating, like, whether the Canucks could chart a course similar to what the Calgary Flames did in going from a very disappointing season in the North Division where they missed the playoffs to winning their division this year and being one of the favorites in the Western Conference, although definitely a tier below the Colorado Avalanche. It's an interesting comparison, Drancer, and I think on the surface there are some similarities between the trajectory of the Flames and where the Canucks stand now. I guess the most notable one is, you know, midway through a, a very disappointing season, you make a coaching change, right? And then you're looking yeah. ahead to the next season and you think, okay, now we've got the right guy behind the bench right from day one. Can that be a launching point? I think that's probably, if you're going to make the argument that the Canucks could be next year's Calgary Flames, that's probably where you start with the similarities behind the bench. The problem is, is that the Calgary Flames, the moment they changed coaches, became a totally different team process-wise, and yet didn't win enough games to actually turn their season around, right? The results for the Flames were disappointing after the change to Sutter, but the way that they played augured very well for them this season. To the point where, you know, before the season, this isn't hindsight, before the season I said that's the team that can beat the Golden Knights in this division. Um, you know, I said it on this on these airwaves, on the, on the Halbro show. And... That was a good prediction, but also the underlying numbers pointed in that direction, inarguably. They became the best team in hockey at controlling play five-on-five five after the coaching change. It's just that the bounces didn't catch up. Markstrom never really caught his breath. They never performed at an elite level. Now, Vancouver, you've got the opposite because they changed to Bruce Boudreaux. They changed coaches, and their process stayed the same. They did not become a different team. They started to attack a little bit better. But the major difference was that their shooting percentage, you know, increased significantly. They regressed massively in that area and their goaltending stayed elite and their power play got hot again, mostly percentage based, not a significant change in the underlying numbers. Really the only process area where the Canucks materially improved under Boudreaux was on the penalty kill. 
However, all of the results became, you know, delicious from a Vancouver <laughs> perspective, right? They became on the fringes of a top 10 team performance-wise. Now, I look at that and I see no reason to believe that the Canucks are similar to the Flames because I bet on process. I bet on process being sustainable. I don't bet on per percentages being sustainable. That's just my approach to analyzing hockey teams. It tends to it tends to stand me well, right? It's why you know, I think I react less when Elias Pettersson struggles for 30 games um, than, than most of the market. Or, or Bo Horvat has 10 really bad games coming off of his COVID ailment uh, because, you know, I'm looking at underlying form more than I'm looking at results, right? Results matter very little to me, in part because they're so coin flip based in, in a variable sport like hockey. And so I look at the Canucks and I see a middling team that punched well above their weight following the coaching change. It's not to say I'm taking credit away from Bruce Boudreau. I'm very much not. I don't think that this team turns it around without his, you know, with what he, without what he brought in terms of the aggression, in terms of the vibes, in terms of that side of it. But I don't know that it means that the Canucks record, uh, sorry, I would strongly caution against believing that the Canucks record in, in Boudreaux's 57 games represents a new level for the team. Management's skeptical on that front, right? They've been explicitly skeptical about it, and they should be. That's right. That's correct. That's good analysis. Um, so, you know, I sort of look at this and think, I don't, I don't really see the analogy. You know, if you look at the five years that the Flames spent going into the season, they were top half of the league team, 560 point percentage over the five years prior, um, you know, multiple seasons in the mid nineties, 100 point season, right? You look at the Canucks and they're 23rd in the NHL in the five years going into this next season. Um, you know, they're, they haven't had a hundred point season. They haven't really been close in terms of their clip uh, with the 57 games they played under Boudreaux aside. They played at a hundred point pace in those games, but you know, that's not a full season. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they made the playoffs, they won a round in the bubble, but you know, they were very much on the fringes of making the playoffs, right? I mean, that was not a no doubter playoff team that year. Um, I see a material difference. I, I don't see the level of depth on the blue line. I certainly don't see a Mangiapane type who, who looks ready to level up and become a top of the lineup caliber piece. Um, you know, I see, I, I see a lot more question marks in Vancouver's case. Now, what happened with Calgary is really hard to replicate in part because you look at like a player like Oliver Shillington who was on waivers. Like Oliver Shillington was available for free yeah. during the 2021 campaign and he's become a bona fide top four guy, right? You look at Rasmus Anderson and he was, you know, a, a bona fide top four guy who's become a bona fide top pair guy. Uh, Noah Hannafin was a solid second pair guy. He's become, you know, an even more solid second pair guy. Gaudreau became one of the top five players in the sport this year. Matthew Kachuk's a hundred point player and a two way driver, not to mention one of the most annoying jerk puck players in recent memory. El Elias Lindholm became a Selkie nominee this season. Uh, like all of these players leveled up all at once. Mangiapane, Blake Coleman came in and did Blake Coleman things, showed that he could be slotted higher in the lineup than where he was slotted in Tampa Bay. The sort of a JT Miller light kind of situation. Um, you look up and down that lineup and, you know, with the exception of Dylan Dubé, everyone hit, everyone hit all at once. Now you look at what they were able to add in particular Tanev, right? Uh, top pair right-handed defenseman who, who came to Calgary and has spent 
has played two of the best years of his career, you know, in, in his early 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a that's a lucky break, right? There, analytically speaking, like I know the, the losing Chris Tanev piece for me was always, um, you know, what what's that going to do to the culture of this team? Because he was such an important locker room guy. But I wouldn't have bet on Chris Tanev having two of the healthiest seasons of his career at this stage of his life, right? I wouldn't have bet on Chris Tanev being, you know, playing his best hockey at this stage of his career, considering his injury history and considering the, what we were seeing in Vancouver, which was his lessening transition impact, um, you know, trending downward in the, in his last three Canucks seasons. He, he's all of a sudden playing like a 27-year-old Chris Tanev again. And, you know, that it, it reminds me a little bit of the Willie Mitchell thing, another Sutter team, where it was like this guy had significant injury risks, significant injury red flags, was very rarely available for more than 60 games toward the end of his Canucks career, was in his early 30s. Like, those are the, those are the guys when you walk away from them, especially on the types of multi-year commitments that they signed in L.A. and Calgary, that you kind of think, well, that's the right call. That's the right decision. That's the prudent move. And yet... It's not fated that those guys aren't going to bounce back. The, I mean, Willie Mitchell, in the first year the Kings won the Cup, played like 100 games, right? Like he missed one game because yeah. of injury, right? Chris Tanev's missed two games this year because of injury. Um, incredible. Happy for happy for him, right? One of my favorite people to cover ever. Uh, one of my favorite players ever, to be totally honest with you. Like Chris Tanev's, um, you know, the, the best. I would love nothing more than to see him win, win a Stanley Cup this year, truly. And yet... You know, I, I don't know that you look back at that. Like, losing to Foley was indefensible, right? Losing Tanev was something different for me, always. And yet, that's worked for the Flames. They've added, you know, another top lineup piece. And then they added a starter. Now, Vancouver has their starter. But nonetheless, you're looking at a situation where for Vancouver to be analogous to Calgary in terms of their bounce back, they, they'd first of all have to have a higher level than they have, right? In my opinion. But also, what you'd really need is... Hoaglander becomes, you know, a Victor Arvidsson quality player next year. Uh, Vasily Podkolzin levels up and, and all of a sudden he's your answer to like Alex Kalorn next year. Um, Bo Horvat, you know, recreates that 30 goal form and improves as a two-way guy. You know, he, he's, he'd have to be your Elias Lindholm. Mm-hmm. He'd have to take that, that leap into being one of the best two-way centers in hockey. You need JT Miller to maintain the form that he showed last season. Um, which is a big, big ass, considering that Miller's, you know, only come close once in his career to playing at that level. Um, you know, you'd need Elias Pettersson to be Johnny Gaudreau, basically, right? Like a, a fringe Hart Trophy Correct. candidate. Uh, uh, well, for sure, a Hart Trophy candidate. Yeah. I mean, Gaudreau was on my heart ballot. I'll tell you that right now. Um, so, you know, everyone would need to level up all at once. And, and even there, I just don't see the same level of talent, particularly not on the blue line. Certainly don't see that level of two-way intelligence. And then also the Canucks would need to add two top-of-the-lineup pieces, right? Like you're also looking at needing to add more in addition to all of those guys cresting and hitting all at once. And then and then I see the analogy. Like honestly, I, I mean, I don't know how you would say that the closer analogy from the Battle of Alberta games, not Edmonton where you've got significant depth issues, a top-heavy team, a questionable blue line. The, the the real difference there, of course, is that we know what the top dogs on the Edmonton Oilers are able to do, mm-hmm. and we know they're going to do it year after year. I don't think we should feel like we have that level of confidence with Vancouver's players. I mean, you know, Pedersen's... No one, no one has uh, been higher on Pedersen than me, I think, it's fair to say, over the past 18 months in this city. And yet, 
you know, I'm not confusing Elias Pettersson for Leon Dreisaitl or McDavid, right? And, no, and no, nor, should no. our, nor should our listeners be, right? I, I don't think you should live in that fantasy land. And same same story goes for Quinn Hughes, which, which sort of brings us to another point. Like, one of the things that I think is really high stakes for the Canucks this season, you know, people keep saying it like it's matter of fact. Like, well, this team doesn't need a, a tear-it-down rebuild. And I've said that, too. I've said I think that the core of the next great Canucks team is here. I believe that. But... I don't know it. You know, it's not certain for me. It's it's something I believe. It's something that I think is a reasonable bet to make, considering what we know of Hughes and Pedersen and, and Demko's quality. But, you know, I still think there's more to show there. I mean, you look up and down the teams that are still playing at this time of year, and whether it's Panarin and Shosturkin, or, you know, Slavin and Svechnikov, or, you know... Um, Obviously, McDavid and Dreisaitl, uh, Makar and McKinnon, mm-hmm. um, you know, Hedman, Kucherov, yeah. Vasilevsky, and Point in, in their case. Barkov, Huberto, and Ekblad in Florida. Like, there are a couple of players on each team at this point in the year where you can say, hey, that team employs, you know, two of the top 25 guys in the sport. Right? For sure. And, you know... Demko, Hughes, Pedersen, I think all three of those guys have the potential to get to that level, but I don't think anyone would say that that any of them has reached that point yet, right? Like, they're not there yet. And one thing that I think makes sense, not, not about running it back necessarily, but about being a little more conservative this offseason, both in terms of going for it, but also in terms of the contractual commitments you make, right? Like, I don't think this team's should be, going out and trying to find their Blake Coleman as like a finishing piece either. Because I do think you need to be watching next season with an eye toward in terms of maturity, in terms of leadership, in terms of developing into, into men in this league. Are these guys capable of being the elite pieces that get this team over the top? Or do you still need to find those guys? Because that yeah. might be the answer. That, that honestly really might be the answer here. And I do think going into the season, working slowly toward to maintain your flexibility, both to both to build this up in case the answer to are Pedersen and Hughes capable of transforming into top 25 players in this league, if that's a resounding yes after next season, then you want to be flexible so you can ramp up quickly. And vice versa, if, if you're beginning to think like, hey, look, like that might be the Morgan Riley and Nazem Kadri of our rebuild, and we still need the elite pieces... Well, then I think you need to be prepared to go the other direction fast, too, and start accumulating in a different type of way. And and that's sort of where I'd be in terms of a certainty. Like, I, I think this team showed enough over 57 games that I'm curious to see what they look like next year. But, you know, all eyes for me need to be on Pedersen, and they need to be on Hughes, and they need to be on can those guys take massive steps forward again um, and and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they can be the best, that they can carry a team, you know, deep into the playoffs year after year, that they can be among the best in the league, not really good players, best in the league caliber players, because you don't win at this time of year without guys that good. And there aren't many of them. Well, the elite talent thing is really interesting, both from a Canucks perspective, but I also want to tie it back to the Flames talk we were having, right? Because as you said, the baseline for the Flames coming into this season, even with the disappointing performance in the North Division from the team, 
it, it was higher than what we've seen from the Canucks in recent season. But the question about the Flames, for me and I think for a lot of other people, was always, do they have those elite pieces to make the jump from, you know, hey, they're the fifth seed this year to being a legitimate Stanley Cup contender, right? Do they have a guy, especially down the middle, do they have a guy who can be a number one center on a Stanley Cup contending team? Well, you look at what happened this year when Elias Lindholm was playing like this. Yeah, he absolutely can be the number one center on a Stanley Cup contending team, right? When Johnny Gaudreau and Matthew Kachuk are playing like this, all of a sudden high-end talent isn't an issue for them. And they not only had those guys at the very, very top of their lineup, I mean, they basically had like seven guys have breakout seasons this year, right? Like seven guys between the ages of 24 and 28 had kind of career years. But that was the key for me was always they have a nice team. They've got some really good pieces. You expect them to be competitive. But do they have those top of the lineup true stars to carry them into that next year where you look at them and you think they're legit Stanley Cup contenders? And that happened this year. And that is huge. But the interesting thing is. That's also always been the kind of most persuasive case for optimism about the Canucks for me, right? Is that, okay, at least you can, I don't want to say hope, because that makes it sound like it's less likely than I think it is, but there's a clear path towards Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes being those guys, right? And then if that falls into place, and I should I should add Thatcher Demko in there as well, if that falls into place, okay, that's the hardest thing to figure out. And then you can theoretically build the rest of the roster around them, although as we've seen in Edmonton, sometimes that's easier said than done. But I do think it's important. For sure. Yeah. I do think it's important to realize, you know, it's not a done deal. Like, I think what Pedersen showed in the last half of this season, to me, that's... That would be the level he needs to get to, but that has to be the baseline, right? Like, that has to be something you can count on year in, year out. Not as a career year, but we know we're going to get that or something very, very close to that from Elias Pettersson every season. That's the level he needs to get to. Quinn Hughes, I still think there's more growth uh, to get to in his game. And like you, I would bet on them doing it. But the interesting thing, I think, is as much as we talk about, you know, What's the Brock Besser extension going to look like? And uh, what should they do with JT Miller? That's a huge one, obviously. Are they going to extend Bo Horvat? I don't want to say that stuff's irrelevant, but it does actually kind of pale in importance in comparison to just the question of how much do Hughes and Pedersen improve? And can they, when, when they reach their peak, can they sustain that consistently on a season-by-season basis? Well, yeah. and And don't forget, like, in comparing the two, right? I mean, you'd look up and down this Canucks lineup, too, and say a lot of guys had career years, right? Oliver ekman Larson had his big bounce back. Truly, he did. Tyler Myers had his best season in a Vancouver Canucks uniform without question, right? Thatcher Demko hit it out of the park in his first year as a starter, and yet his sample of performance at the NHL level remains, you know, sub 4,500 shots. In, in a world where goaltending performance vacillates wildly year after year, you know, I'd look at Demko's career track record and say a 9-12 goaltender, I, you know, he's a good bet to be an average starter or better. And when I watch him play, I see a guy who's dominant in for long stretches. Again, a guy I'd bet on. But do we know that he's a top five starter? Talent evaluators around the league think he is, for sure. I think you definitely have a lot of confidence in that partnership with Ian Clark, but to say, you know it, I I mean, that's the type of claim that I certainly would regard skeptically. Uh, You know, I I already brought up Pearson, right? But Pearson career year, Miller, Bo Horvat, 30 goals for the first time in his career. Uh, Even Elias Pettersson over the latter half of the season, 
you know, if you isolate just just that last 50 games, I mean, what was he on a 45 goal, yeah, hundred plus point pace? Yeah. I mean, there were there were shades of like if you think that Calgary's got a lot of players who are going to regress, well, the Canucks do too, right? The the Canucks are in the same. The Canucks to some extent actually had all their guys crest at the same time this year. Quinn Hughes's bounce back defensively included, and it still wasn't enough. So you know the. The comparison to me, like, I think Calgary's a, a, a much more an aspirational model than any type of model where you can say the Canucks are capable of having the same turnaround into next season. I would be stunned. I would be gobsmacked based on the underlying profile of Vancouver after the coaching change and the underlying profile of the Calgary Flames after the coaching change if the Canucks followed a similar trajectory and became a no-doubt elite team next season. And this isn't, again, me being negative. This is coming from the guy who called this for Calgary, right? Like, I'm the the guy who was pounding my fist on the table saying Calgary's an elite team, going to be the second-best team in the Pacific, real chance at winning the division – I don't see the same things from the Canucks, and I promise you, if I did, I'd be saying it. Like I, I would be. I would be. I would be banging my fist on the table, saying, "Don't sleep on this team." I just, I, I see a middling team with a ton of distance to close, and a team that's far closer, if everything hits, to being built like Edmonton, than a team that's built like Calgary. There's a lot of work to do to get the depth of this roster, the blue line on this roster, to you know within spitting distance of the tier that the flames got to this season. I don't think the Boudreaux impact a full season of Boudreaux is nearly sufficient to make the Canucks that type of team. Uh, This text comes in from rager. He says uh, when you were running through the list of, you know, star players really carrying their team who are still left in the playoffs, he says a lot of what that list has in common is that almost all of them will be hall of famers. The question should be, uh, will Petey and Hughes be Hall of Famers? And I-, I think that might be setting the bar a little high. You know what I mean? Like, Elias Lindholm, I think he can be the number one center. I-, I think there's a chance Calgary could win the Cup this year, right? And I think he could be their number one center. I-, I don't think he's on a Hall of Fame trajectory, depending on how the rest of his career goes. So that might be setting the bar a little high. The way I think of it is, you know, like I said with the Flames, can Pedersen and Hughes be the best? Can Pedersen be the best center? Can Hughes be the best defenseman? on a Stanley Cup championship team, right? Like, that's the that's the way I think of the question in terms of are they franchise players? And I think the answer absolutely can be yes to both of those, but it's not a locked-in stone yes like it is when you're dealing with, you know, Nathan McKinnon and Nikita Kucherov and Victor Hedman and go down the list. And look, there's no shame in not having ascended to those heights yet. Again, we're talking about, as you said, like the – top 10 or top 20 best players in the NHL who are in those categories for a reason. Patterson and Hughes have that upside, but it is this season is hugely, hugely important for them to really show that it's not just theoretical at this point, right? Like it's not theory. It's not theory. It's not something we're hoping to see in the future. It's here and you can start counting on it and you can start building around it. That's really still Beyond what anything they do with the rest of the roster, to me, that's the biggest question or will be the biggest question going into the Canucks season next year. And without being able to definitively say yes, right, which certainly when Rutherford, remember Rutherford took over his first press conference, right? He called Demko a franchise player, but that was kind of where he stopped. He stopped short, right? And I think if you can't definitively say yes, with as a consensus pick with everyone in hockey operations chiming in and saying those guys can lead us 
to the Stanley Cup? If the answer is not a definitive consensus, yes, on, on a gut level, well, then you have to proceed with caution and be prepared to change direction, right? That's just my view of of the prudent way forward here. And I say that, again, as a guy with, you know, a a ton of regard for those players and a belief that, you know, ultimately I'll feel a lot more confident in 12 months saying yes than I do today. It's the kind of thing where, as you said, if the answer to that question in a year's time isn't yes, I mean, we're talking about big, big, tough decisions to make this offseason, Right. If the answer to that question isn't yes, you're talking about a whole other level of really, really complex, difficult decisions uh, that the hockey operations department will have to make. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. Are Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes the top of the lineup elite players that can take the Canucks uh, towards Stanley Cup contention? Get your thoughts in. 650-650. We'll read some of your thoughts and questions, texts. Uh, continue to look at the Stanley Cup playoffs last night's game, last night's games, and tonight's as well. Don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and review as well. More on the way. You're listening to the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. What's going on? Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strantz here with you. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. I want to get into uh, a little bit else of what happened in the Stanley Cup playoffs last night, what's on tap for tonight as well. But first, into the inbox, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I asked you, the listeners, can Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes be the top of the lineup players that the Canucks need them to be to make that jump towards contention? Brad and Cloverdale text in, to me, Quinn Hughes is pretty much a sure thing on terms of being a top D and a contender. PD less certain but I do believe he has the potential to get there. Uh, Chad texts in, I love Pedersen, but not sure he will be enough long-term. I see him as a comp to Tarasenko at his peak. Not enough to win you a cup alone. He says, even a prime Malkin, I'm not sure if he wins a cup without Sid. I mean, look, if Elias Pedersen is prime of getting Malkin, you're you're, you're very, very, very happy uh, about that. I, I understand Malkin was technically never the number one center because of the presence of Sidney Crosby, but he was a phenomenal player in his own <laughs> right on those teams. Pl- yeah. He was a top player in the sport. In fact, there were years where I thought Evgeny Malkin was the best player in hockey. Like, full years where I was like, this guy's the most unstoppable force in the sport. Yeah, if he's if he's close to that, if Elias Pettersson is close to that, you are absolutely, uh, absolutely thrilled <laughs> with it, to say the least. There were there, there were years ten there were years years ten years ago where if you'd asked me who's the best player on the Penguins, I wouldn't have immediately said Sidney Crosby. I would have had to think about it. I'm not <laughs> saying I wouldn't have answered Sidney Crosby, but I would have had to think about it. Just think about how good you have to be for that. Yeah, to, to, to even true. introduce a little bit of pause into the conversation. <laughs> um, you have to be outrageous. This one came in as well, unsigned. It says, with the Flames' upcoming free agents, could the Canucks target Mangiapane uh, as the team's cap problems will start to hit? And look, Andrew Mangiapane, incredible player, uh, would love to see him on the Canucks, not just for the uh, Dan Riccio over pronunciations, although that would be spectacular. But the thing is, I mean, first of all, he's an RFA, so there's still team control there for the Flames. You're talking about giving assets up in some shape or form to sign him. And the other interesting thing is, as much as they're going to have to hand out mega deals 
to Matthew Kachuk and Johnny Gaudreau after the types of seasons that they had, it's not, I don't know that the Flames are in a situation where they're going to have to shed a key piece like Andrew Mangiapane to make it work because they still have a ton of cap flexibility and you just look Stop at it. what that's, I mean, that stuff's ridiculous. Like, yeah, you know, look at Tampa Bay, look how loath teams are to give up their really good players yeah. while figuring out situations. You solve your problems, you know, like teams solve their problems. They don't, um, they don't get rid of a player like Mangiapane. Like, the guy far more likely to be moved if they end up having to shed a salary is going to be Dubé. I mean, they've got Dubé, who a lot of teams, I promise you, would love to gamble on him bouncing back, right? He's got $2.3 million. If they clear that, they're up to, what, 28? 28, 30 million in, in available oh, yeah. cap space? And the thing is, yeah, they... a lot of their a lot of their key guys, and then Milan Lucic, who's by the way played really well. Shout shout out to uh, East Vancouver's Milan Lucic. He's been disturbingly competent for the Flames all all playoffs, um, hitting hitting a new level all season. He's been ex- exceptional, honestly. Well, okay, he's been a very good bottom six forward who obviously brings a unique dimension to the team, and you know. Yes, he's got a no move. Yes, he's got a. I think he's got a modified no trade. Um, but there are ways around that. You don't lose. You don't lose Mangiapane. No, because you have twenty six million in cap space, and you have to sign both Gaudreau and Kachuk. And and here's the last part of this, right? If the Flames are playing in the Western Conference Final, right, whether they win or lose to Colorado, and then they're opening extension talks with all three guys, well. That's a good spot to be in, right? That's a good spot to be in. First of all, they they already brought into Foley. You know, if they lose Gaudreau, they're going to be a very attractive landing spot for a variety of players. Plus, they keep Dubé. Plus, you know, you just keep adding your depth. Now, you can't replace what Gaudreau b- brought. You, you want to keep him. But if it really gets silly, if the number really gets silly, or if he's really motivated to go play on the East Coast or, or what have you, um, you're prepared to manage it. You're prepared to manage it if you're Calgary. Um you also would rather be negotiating with these guys when you're like, hey, look, like, let's, you know, why don't you guys take twin $10 million deals and keep playing together? You guys take twin $10 million deals. Uh, Andrew, you know, you're a year away from unrestricted free agency. Why don't you sign, you know, five times six? And boom, like, without clearing a single body, the Flames can afford that. And they'll be good. They'll yeah. be really good again next year. It's it, it, when you're a really good team cap space dries up quickly and you have to solve problems, but you also tend to be in the driver's seat in conversations with players because they tend to be motivated to want to keep winning and they love to win together. They love to win with their teammates. Usually, particularly when you've had as much success as Calgary has this season. The other thing about Calgary is they have that extra wiggle room because they have a lot of really efficient team friendly contracts on the books like Lindholm 4.8 for another two years. Hannafin, Anderson, Tanev, all under $5 million, right? All filling in, all playing really well in your top four. They've got a lot of good contracts, so they're going to be able to navigate the offseason they have without damaging their team too much, as much as, <laughs> as, much as that might be a bummer uh, for Canucks fans who are hoping that Gaudreau and Kachuk are really going to gouge them and screw things up for them. Um, I want to put it. I wanted to put this question to you, Drancer. After uh, the games last night, so Edmonton losing the Wild one, 9-6 in Calgary, and New York losing to Carolina in overtime after kind of surprisingly controlling play pretty well early in that game. Of those two teams, New York and Edmonton, 
who should be more worried going down one nothing in their series? Um, of the four? No, let's just stick I to those two the... for now. Because the, the to me, the answer is St. Louis. I think if we're if we're expanding it to all four. Well, I, I mean, I think I think yeah, I think other than Florida, Tampa Bay, I think the better team won in all four games. Right, like I'm not sure about Florida and Tampa Bay, but I, I think Tampa. Like I picked Tampa Bay, but I wouldn't say that Tampa Bay's better. You know what I mean? Like I think they're, um, I just think they're more ready. They're more ready. Just like I didn't think Tampa Bay was better than Toronto. I just thought they were, you know, uh, less scared of the moment. They had more belief. Yeah, and and I think they have more belief again. Um, so you know, I think they'll win. But th- so last night, I think the Rangers. The problem for the Rangers is that for 50 minutes and not because of what the Rangers were doing, the Carolina Hurricanes played terrible hockey. Just they were awful. They were so out of sorts. They looked brutal. The goal they gave up on a three and one was just one of the dumbest plays you'll see all postseason from Anthony D'Angelo. And yet when the game was on the line and there were five minutes to go, it was like breakaway post, breakaway post, breakaway goal. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, oh my god! When when this when the chips were down, the Carolina Hurricanes bashed the Rangers' head in and feasted on the delicious goo contained <laughs> therein. And you know, honestly, I kind of think the same thing happened in Calgary last night, where the Edmonton Oilers tie the game. And what do the Flames have the next ten scoring chances? Yeah, they, you know, they, they just, fi- just they find that next gear and they're like, oh, this is close again. Oh, we right. we got to do something here. LOL, little brother. Nice punch. Now I'm going to throw your... uh, Sorry. Now I'm going to hold your head out while you swing wildly and just wait for you to tire yourself out and then pounce. Uh, Those were shows of force by far superior teams for me. That's that's what I took from last night. Uh, You know, I I would not be shocked if all four teams that won game one go on to win the series. Uh, All four teams that I've picked to win their series won the first game. I'm worried if I'm everybody, but I think the only team... That I'm like, you know, the only team that I don't think should be really nervous is the Florida Panthers. I still think there's a gear there that they can hit to to get back in this series. And and when they hit that gear, if they can hit that gear, because we haven't seen it all playoffs, I do think that gear is higher than their opponents. The interesting thing is outside of St. Louis, you can look at all of the other three teams that lost and think, wow, that was a real missed opportunity in some way shape or form right like as you said Carolina didn't have anything close to their a game for long long stretches of that one New York couldn't find a way to win though right like they're not going to New York is probably not going to be able to hang with Carolina like that for long stretches maybe again in this series couldn't find a way to turn it into a win you know Jacob Markstrom had one of the worst games we've seen him play in a long long time Edmonton couldn't turn it into a win uh Florida Braden Point wasn't in the lineup for uh, for the Tampa Bay Lightning. They couldn't take advantage of that. So you're already like, oh, man, that might have been our chance to actually get a game, or at least in Florida's case, to take game one, and you couldn't make it happen. And now the favorites, they're feeling good about themselves. They're they're going to be, you would think, you know, correcting a lot of those issues going into game two. So it's a really tough position uh, to be in, I think, for all of those teams. Although, as you said, Florida and Tampa playing tonight, uh, you know, I, I think Florida's going to make that a series. I think I picked Florida to win in seven. I, I'm not feeling great about that <laughs> after Tampa picked up game one, but it does feel like the series most likely to go the distance just because 
I, I got to think at some point Florida is going to put together a couple of really impressive offensive games in this playoffs, which they haven't really done yet, especially because of their struggles on the power play. I wonder if because, you know, because the because one elite team or at least elite on paper team in Vegas missed the playoffs and because another elite team or at least elite on paper went out in the first round in the Minnesota wild. I wonder if we're in for a bit of a quick round, you know, I wouldn't be stunned if I I wouldn't be stunned if the pyrotechnics get delayed until the next round following a a really good first round where where obviously all the series went long Uh, unsigned text in, by the way, Gaudreau has 110 point season. Why would he take 10 million? You know, one of those things that you just have to check a little bit, I think, in terms of knowing what actual market value is for players, right? Gaudreau had 115 points this season, which is, mm-hmm. you know, don't get me wrong, outrageous. Third in the NHL, there were eight players in the league that had 100 points, right? Um, there are seven players in the entire NHL, seven forwards in the entire NHL with a cap hit above 10 million. So I'm not counting if you're 10 million, that's where you're at. Above 10 million? There are seven players, McDavid, Panarin, Matthews, Tavares, Marner, Taves, Kane. Now, Gaudreau could definitely join that group, but McDavid at 12-5 is kind of a pretty hard ceiling. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, the idea of the $15 million player, uh, look, we may see that guy at some point, but I don't think we're going to see it in, in a year where the cap went up just $1 million, right? Like, I think we're a few years away from someone breaking the McDavid barrier, uh, although it will happen. I do believe it will happen, particularly once the cap starts to accelerate. The Matthews, when's the, but Matthews is going to be up before the cap starts to go up, though, right? So I don't know if he's well, going to be in full position because he's I got mean, two he's more got years. Two years left. Yeah. So, yeah, prob- he's probably one year away. And, and of course, every player in the NHL's goal should be to be the NHL's answer to Timofey Mozgov. I've said it before. I'll keep <laughs> saying it. But that's that should be the goal. Like, there's going to be a year where the player's side has paid off their debt to ownership, and I think we're going to see, like, a 12 or a 13 or a $14 million lift, and it's going to be hilarious. And certainly, certainly, like, you know, a team like New Jersey who just locked up Jack Hughes for eight years, right? I mean, they're going to be the the biggest beneficiaries, um, you know, but we're going to see a player. We're going to see some guy, just like some guy who's a second pair defenseman, and he's going to sign for like $9 million because there's just a wash of cap space in the system, and everyone's going to be like, what? Excuse me? What? Huh? What, what just happened? What? <laughs> um, anyway, if I was an NHL player, I legitimately, my whole ambition in life at this point you know, other other than winning the Stanley Cup, although maybe just as important to me, would be like, I want to be, I want to be the NHL's Timofey Mozgov. That's what I want. Oh my goodness. And the other thing with, you know, why would Gaudreau not go for Max Dollar? Look, that's a fair question because that's always a possibility, right? When a player who's well, coming might. up. Yeah, exactly. Like It's always a possibility. The reasons why he wouldn't do it, one, just the, you know, the long-term security and just... Uh, the the fact that he's played his whole career in Calgary, he's comfortable there. They're coming off a winning season. Those things do matter to players, right? It's, you don't have to make a big change. You don't have to learn a new city and a new organization. Things are going really well for you. You play on one of the best lines in hockey. They can potentially give you that extra eighth year that nobody else can, and that bumps up the total value. There's a lot of reasons that players are swayed other than strictly maximizing you know, the AAV. Now, again, it's totally possible that he says, you know what? 
I, I should have been a Hart Trophy nominee this year. I was fantastic. I was one of the best players in the league. I am going to try to get every last dollar I can from some team on the UFA market. That's totally a possibility. But I can also very much understand the thought process to, you know what, $10 million a year is still a lot to play hockey, and I'll, I'll take that for all the other benefits that staying uh, in Calgary can give me. I mean, it, it's kind of like the talk we have about Bo Horvat potentially signing long-term in Vancouver, right? Like, Bo Horvat, if he has another 30-goal season, he could make a lot of money as a UFA next year. But there are reasons beyond money which might push him towards signing with Vancouver. That's just kind of the push and pull that big-name UFAs go through in the NHL. Well, and remember, in UFA, all bets are off because you have absolutely every option possible, right? So, look, Gaudreau could be the highest-paid player in the NHL next season. I, I see a world where that's possible. I'm just saying from a from the perspective of the sell job that you make if you're the Flames, you're, you're, you're trying to get him at a lower cap hit than that, and you're selling him on the opportunity to win and win big versus you know one of the other opportunities that will be available to him, like, say, joining an upstart team in New Jersey where the ceiling is high, yeah. but the risk is also higher. Um, also, good comment in from Gary on the North Shore. Mr. Drance, why would you suggest we get smaller players, i.e. Mangiapane? Canucks need bigger, faster players. We could not compete with the teams I see now in the playoffs. I believe he's quoting me there. It's, you know, I'm not a big size fetishist in terms of player evaluation. Like, Mangiapane is an elite competitor, right? He plays yeah. a lot bigger than his size. That That's what matters more to me. Blake Coleman's another really good example. Blake Coleman, when you hear the old school types who don't want to admit that the Tampa Bay Lightning one by being stubborn about skilled hockey over a decade and want to be like, no, look, they changed their whole identity with Gaudreau and, and Coleman. Like, yeah, okay, sure. They changed their whole identity because they upgraded their third line. Really believable. Re really, really arguing from a place of desperation, old guard. Um, with the, you know, Coleman types, like Coleman's not a, a big beastly, you know, Coke machine himself. He's just got elite competitiveness, right? He, he plays direct. He's a really good shooter, and he works like crazy. Uh, just a massive work rate. Uh, Manjapani's in the same mold. Uh, those are the types of players, you know, th that I think matter. Like, you can play heavy and be a shorter player. Um, you know, I've, I've often said that I think Brendan Gallagher is one of the NHL's great power forwards. <laughs> He's like 5'6". Um, it's not about size for me. It's about how you play. It's about the competitiveness. But all of that said... Uh, you know, I do think the Canucks also need size. <laughs> they need more size, they need more speed. Uh, two things. Uh, first of all, a, a couple of texters have called you Mr. Drance in the text box today, which is uh, a fantastic addition. I'm not exactly sure why that took off, yeah. but uh, you love Mr. to see Mr. it. Drance is my, Mr. Drance is my father. <laughs> yes, exactly. The other thing I would say is um, I, I want us to shift away from talking about size to talking about, like, strength. And, and I would say strength and also, as you said, fight, competitiveness, you know, he's got that dog in him, all of those types of things. But you can be, you know, to me, it's much less important if a player is 6'3 or 6' foot or 5'10 than it is, you know, how strong are they, right? Like, can they get, can they win puck battles? They go to the hard areas in front of the net and survive and perform well there with the physical attributes that they have. Because guess what? There are guys who are 6'2 that don't do those things well, right? And then great. Hey, oh, yeah. you've added a six foot two player. You got bigger, but you didn't actually get tougher. You didn't actually become a harder team to play against or a more playoff ready team. And conversely, there are five ten guys who are absolute monsters on the puck. Look at Braden Point. Is anyone going to say that he's not built for the playoffs? That he's not tough? He absolutely is. It's just a question of identifying those guys looking beyond, oh, hey, he's six three. He's going to be a beast in the playoffs. 
the uh, yeah there's a lot of guys and unfortunately the canucks organizations had a few of them over the past decade with power forward frames who play exclusively on the perimeter right and 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 vice versa you've got guys who will live at the net front despite being completely average human beings in terms of their physical dimensions and athletic gifts um you know i think about a guy like alex burrows right um, just like lived at the net front, lived in the dirty areas. But if you saw him on the street or on the tennis court, you'd be like, oh, that guy might be a professor. He's just in really good shape. <laughs> just a really, really ripped professor walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> just incredible stamina and athleticness. But, yeah. but nonetheless, a relatively normal human being as opposed to, you know, a Ryan Getzlaff. Right. Yeah, Where you're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, my, oh, my goodness. Um, you know, or a Mario Lemieux. Like, I don't know. I, the first time I ever met Mario Lemieux, you know, and he's like six foot five. He looks like he could play still. Right. And he's he's the best dressed guy in the arena. You know, it's just like like I've never I've almost never been starstruck while meeting anybody in this business. Mario Lemieux. I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. That's a different type of size. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It, it really, really is. Uh, all right. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you to everyone who texted in. Thank you to everyone who called uh, Drance or Mr. Drance. Brought that element of respect into the inbox. You love to see it. We're actually going to be off tomorrow. We're moving the schedule around a little bit to accommodate playing the Nooner at the Nat for the Canadians. So we will be off, but we will be back on Monday. Uh, enjoy your long weekend. Enjoy the hockey. More coming up on the Home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.